I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Gandhi to come on up, and I imagine there are a few of you that have agreed to be on the panel. Um, we're going to have discussions with regards to um, cases in antiviral therapy, and uh, to do that, uh, Dr. Uh, Raj Gandhi from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School will be leading the discussion. Raj. Great. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here in Los Angeles. I want to invite up to the, um, to the table our uh, panelists. You've already met Dr. Benson and Dr. Dar, and I'll introduce Dr. Connie Kellum from the University of Washington, who will be our third panelist, and Dr. Klausner here from uh, UCLA. So um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. What we'll do is we'll try to pull together a lot of what you've heard this morning, as well as some things that, you haven't yet, uh, that we haven't yet touched on. I'm going to go through mostly antiretroviral cases, but at the very end, and I very uh, much hope we'll get to this, uh, will be a few surprises. No matter how long we've been doing this, uh, there are always surprises. I see that are um, a little bit of a shuffling of the, of the, uh, of the cards. So. OK, great. So here we go. Um, these are my disclosures. And on the next slide are our learning objectives. We'll talk a little bit about initial treatment. We'll talk about a, a couple of cases of drug-resistant HIV. And then we'll talk some about the complications and, as I mentioned, a few surprises at the end. So here we go. We're going to talk about a, a topic that we touched on briefly in the last talk, but what do we start in a person with newly diagnosed HIV? And here I want to um, use this particular case to illustrate the, the, the topic. This is a person I saw last month, a man who's in his 40s. He's a man who has sex with men. He presented to us with fever and sore throat for about a week. He had a new sexual partner. He didn't have any other medical conditions. His exam was normal. And here are his findings at the outset. He had a HIV antibody antigen test that was positive. His differentiation antibody test, though, was negative, And his viral load was 10 million. A bunch of stuff was pending. His creatinine was pending. His CD4 count was pending. His genotype was pending. His B5701 is pending. But he's willing to start treatment. And so what would you start in this uh, situation? Uh, so go ahead and vote. Um, you, I think the system is activated, so you can vote while the screen is up. Would you start dolutegavir plus FTC-TAF? Would you start bactegavir FTC-TAF, dolutegavir, abacavir, lamivudine, the two-drug therapy that we just heard about, dolutegavir, lamivudine, deravirine, a drug that we haven't yet talked about, but will in for a moment, um, 3TC-TDF, darunavir, cobacistat, FTC-TAF, or something else. And if it's something else, you have to come up and, and tell me what that is. So go ahead and, uh, and vote. Um, I think hopefully the votes are coming in while I've been talking. I hear it, see a thumbs up from, from the back. And we're going to see what our, our panelists will, will say. many votes we have, but we might, we might take a look. Okay. okay. So about um, a little under two-thirds like Bictegavir FTC-TAF, the other about a quarter like um, Dolutegavir FTC-TAF, a few like Dolutegavir Lamivudine. So let's see what our panelists would do in this, in this situation. Eric, you want to start us off? You look like you're sure, I'll leading go. in. I'll, I'll go for it. Um, you know, I think that there are a variety of, of, of answers that are probably reasonable here. 
Um, probably the two for which we have uh, the most robust data here. The big issue here is starting without resistance testing available, and, and maybe another issue of relevance here is the viral load, that it's so high. Um, so in starting without resistance data, we generally want drugs in which transmitted resistance is rare and the barrier to resistance is high in case we're wrong. Um, and, and in the guidelines, that has traditionally been a boosted PI. Until more recently, guidelines have incorporated dolutegravir based on really an enormous amount of data showing the barrier to resistance is quite high. Um, and then Bictegravir FTC-TAF is actually in the ISUSA guidelines as an option for rapid starts or when you don't have resistance data back. And I think there it's, it's a little bit more on extrapolation from the two registrational trials with no resistance and the in vitro data suggesting it's gonna be a lot like dolutegravir. So I would argue that that's probably true, but if you were really driven by data alone, that might be a slightly inferior selection, but I'm sure would end up working. So I think one of those three would be best. I tend to be conservative. I'd probably ask the person to take Dolutegra FTC TAF as my preferred option if they said, but doc, it's gotta be one pill, <laughs> which is unusual, but if that's what they said, then I would agree with the audience and probably go with Bictegravir FTC TAF as of convenience and tolerability and and things like that. The Dolutegra 3TC, I think I'd be concerned for a variety of reasons, not the least of which would be the high viral load, because this is really pushing the limits of how the drug was studied. So we're gonna have, over the course of this uh, 50 minutes or so, everyone is gonna weigh in, so we don't have to, unless someone has a strikingly different opinion, I think we'll go on. But I, I, I would agree with um, most of the audience. The DHHS guidelines, as was alluded to, because of the, the more data with dolutegravir and with boosted PIs, that kind of rises to the top of that particular guideline. Um, so I, I certainly agree with what, what was said. Just the point about this particular patient. This particular patient has acute HIV. He has um, an antibody test that is um, still evolving, but his RNA is positive and his uh, fourth generation test, which has both P24 and an antibody, is positive. So in the parlance, he fits into this FIBIC2 stage. And this is the type of person that you may want to refer to one of Dr. Dar's uh, clinical trials to try to get people on therapy very, very early. Um, so how do we go about choosing an initial regimen? A lot of this has been touched on already, um, and a lot of you have uh, vast experience doing this. These are the guidelines that you saw before, um, so I won't belabor this. I'll just uh, draw your attention over to the, to the right-hand side, um, the, the left-hand slide of the slide, which is the IAS USA guidelines, the three regimens that we heard about before. They do call out that we have fewer long-term safety and efficacy data with Bictegravir at the time of this writing, that if there's a substantial cost difference, that TDF with 3TC or FTC is effective and generally well-tolerated, especially if someone doesn't have a risk for a bone or renal disease. And they go on to um, uh, note that the, the differences between TAF and TDF are most pronounced when you have a booster uh, in place. So a couple of things to keep in mind. But I think most of us will start with an integrase inhibitor-based regimen. Um, let me just say a word about some of the options that you might want to consider if you don't want to use an integrase inhibitor, and that's relatively uncommon. I can think of one scenario is if you have someone on multiple um, uh, doses of a, of a cation, a divalent cation like calcium carbonate a couple of times a day, that would be an instance where it would become hard to stagger the dosing of integrase, but that's a rare uh, occurrence. Here are some options listed for you for alternatives for integrase inhibitors. I'm gonna say a word about the last two uh, on the slide because these are somewhat uh, newer uh, drugs. Um, Deravarine is a new NNRTI. It got approved last um, fall. 
It's active in vitro against virus that's resistant to the first generation NNRTIs, and in particular, it's active against virus that has mutations like K103N and some of the other mutations listed there. It's a once daily drug. It's got a low potential for drug-drug interactions. And it's been subjected to phase three clinical trials, competing it against boosted darunavir and favarins. And in those settings, it's, it's non-inferior in terms of virologic suppression. And it has some advantages over those comparators. In terms of um, the boosted PI, it's got better lipid effects. And in, compared to favarins, it has better neuropsychiatric effects. And a study that's not um, relevant specifically to tr uh, treatment initiation, a switch study, uh, this combination of Duravarine 3-TC-TDF was non-inferior to keeping uh, people on their baseline ART. And as you know, it's available on its own and co-formulated with TDF3-TC. And as I mentioned, it, it might be an option for someone who you don't want to use an integrase inhibitor in. Now, what's notably missing here is a head-to-head -head comparison with an integrase inhibitor. And I think that's why most of us have, have not adopted this wholesale for initial treatment. And this is why it's an alternative in most of the guidelines. Another drug that a few of you voted for for this initial um, rapid start is um, darunavir cobacistat ftc taf This is a, a single pill combination, has a high virologic suppression rate, and it has a very high barrier to resistance. In the AMBER studies, essentially nobody got resistant to either tenofovir or to darunavir. Uh, uh, Sorry if I said deravirin before. This is darunavir. And there is a single-arm study called DIAMOND, which is a rapid start study. And in that study, very good viral suppression rates with a single pill combination of, of this, um, this pill. This pill, um, the data that I'm showing you here is week 24 data, but just last month it was updated to week 48 data in the DIAMOND study, and it continued to look good. So with that in hand, I want to actually ask you kind of a, uh, another question related to initial starting, which is the issue of resistance testing, and then we'll see what our panel weighs in on this. So this same patient, same scenario. Um, in addition to ordering an RT, a reverse transcriptase protease genotype, which of the following in addition would you order? Go ahead and start the voting, please. Would you order an integrase genotype? And I'm really interested to hear what you think and, and our panel thinks. A profile, uh, a, a proviral DNA, a trophile DNA, would you order none of the above or would you order all of the above? Suspense. Okay. This is either, yeah, I think it's a good question. <laughs> pretty much a split, so the panel can, can weigh in and be the tiebreaker. So about half of you roughly want uh, integration genotype, and half of you don't want anything more. So panelists, what do you think? Well, I'll just throw out a couple of comments. Looks like. 5% of you have access to somebody with a whole lot of money. <laughs> so I, I think, um, you know, Eric nicely summarized the uh, concerns with rapid start and the potential for background rates of transmitted resistance to integrase inhibitors, which fortunately, at least in the U.S., is very low. And so a rapid start with an integrase inhibitor while you're awaiting uh, genotype would 
be a fine way to start. So I would probably still get the HIV integrase genotype, at least in our setting. We have, uh, we haven't had a lot of resistance and I'd be interested to see if anybody else has seen um, background transmitted resistance to an integrase inhibitor. And then the point about proviral DNA is really trying to get at the question of um, residual uh, mutations in the reservoir. And is this a way to get at that information to see if people might have been exposed to somebody who'd been on an integrase inhibitor and have archived a viral mutation in their reservoir at some point. Um, I don't think that's necessary in this setting, so I wouldn't do that or really any of the other assays. Any, any other perspectives on this? I'm going to actually ask you to vote as to whether you've seen a transmitted case of integrase inhibitor, but any other points from the panel before we move on? Yeah, I, I would just say, I mean, in terms of consistency of practice, if you're going to get the RTPR genotype, why wouldn't you get the integrase uh, genotype? I mean, you have a low probability of finding RTPR resistance as well, so you might as well be complete, and then you find out at some point in the future that you didn't get the test and you'll be a lot more uh, concerned. Well, let me ask the audience here. Um, have you seen a case of transmitted integrase resistance? Yes, no, or I'm not looking. So this one should be a, a quick one. I, I think that last couple of points are, are good because that is the issue is shouldn't we just be doing it? And I'll tell you what the current guidelines say and then I'll, I'll share a little bit more information. But let's see what, what people are seeing. Okay, so about a third of you are, are not looking and the ones who um, are looking a few of you have seen transmitted drug resistance to integrase, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So let's see what the guidelines and others are saying about this. So the guidelines have been influenced by this uh, modeling article that came out of Rochelle Walensky's group. This is um, uh, asking the question, should we be testing for baseline integrase resistance in newly diagnosed patients? So just the scenario that I'm presenting to you. So in this modeling paper, they compared the 96-week clinical outcomes and cost-effectiveness of doing integrase resistance testing in newly diagnosed patients, and they essentially concluded that integrase resistance was projected to result in worse outcomes because you'd often switch to, say, a less well-tolerated therapy and was not cost-effective. So that has influenced the guidelines. The current DHHS guidelines, which obviously get revised each year, I recommend against integrase resistance testing unless you have a strong suspicion for someone who's um, acquired HIV from someone who's taking an integrase inhibitor. So what other data do we have on this topic? There was a really... Um, kind of sobering case report that was uh, published just recently in OFID. This was a woman who was diagnosed with HIV about a year ago, uh, exactly a year ago in fact. No previous uh, ART treatment and this woman was infected by a virus that had three integrase resistance mutations and you can see them here. And this turned out that the person's sexual partner um, had HIV and had the exact same mutations and that uh, sexual partner had previously received raltegravir and dolgitegravir. What about the rate of integrase inhibitor resistance? Where are we in the United States? Um, Dr. Benson already mentioned that it's low, and it indeed is. These are um, data from CROI this year from the CDC. Now, the trouble is what's going on with the CDC right now is they used to do systematic surveillance, surveillance for transmitted drug resistance. Now what they're doing is more passive collection of all of us who send um, genotypes, and then they reported out their data for the different classes. The overall rate of transmitted drug resistance as of 2016, between 2013 and 2016, was about 20%. Most of it was NNRTI, 
About six or so, a little under 7% was nucleoside resistance. About 2% of people have transmitted M184V. That's the concern that Dr. Um, raised with the Dolgitegra-3TC. And then about 1% have integrase resistance mutations. And the two colors here are 2013 to 2016, and not a lot of change during that time, but, but we'll have to see. And I think, um, obviously, we're now three years later. There's a lot more integrase inhibitor use now than there was even in 2016. I'll tell you my own practices as evolving. Um, I don't think there's a consensus or a completely right answer on this. I'm telling you what the guidelines say. I'm telling you what you know, the, the, dates, the, the data that we have is. If I have reason to suspect someone has acquired HIV, if I have some, um, some historical in information from the patient that they may have acquired it from someone on an integrase inhibitor, then I will do just what was said at the, the last item is I will order all three of them, the RT, protease, and integrase. Um, I haven't done it routinely in everybody, but we'll, this is, I think, an evolving topic. I'll be back next year, and we'll see, we'll see where we are. Does anyone want to make any other comments on this particular case before we move on to another scenario? Just, just that I, you know, it is mostly a money thing. Yeah. I don't think most of us are worried that if we start ordering it, our patients' outcomes will be worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if it came bundled with yeah. RT and protease, we probably would do it. Yeah. As long as it doesn't and costs more money, we're just a little bit more cautious. Yeah. So now let's go on to a second case scenario. Now we're going to um, uh, tackle the question of what to start, what antiretroviral regimen to start in someone with M184B. And this is in part because there are uh, new data on this topic. So let me set this up with this case. Uh, this is a 60-year-old man with HIV. He was diagnosed some years ago in the 80s. His CD4 count nadir was 100. He took AZT monotherapy. He got tenofovir, uh, FTC, and efavirenz. And he developed resistance um, with, with M184V as well as K103N. So what regimen would you choose for this person's second regimen? And I'm going to give you a couple of choices. I think you can start voting. Would you give this person Dolgitegravir Evacuvir 3TC, Dolgitegravir FTC TAF? How about Bictegravir FTC TAF? A four-drug regimen, the first of the four-drug regimens, uh, Dolgitegravir plus Ropivirin FTC TAF or that same single pill combination with the protease inhibitor that I alluded to before, Dermunivir uh, boosted with Cobacistat FTC-TAC, or something else. And let's see what our audience thinks, and then we'll... Okay, some early indicators here. How many people have voted? But 74% of you in this M184B uh, uh, patient would use Bictegra FTC-TAC, about 20% uh, like a dog take a FTC uh, We'll make some comments about the first choice. I think that's a choice I wouldn't um, give, the uh, back of your 3TC uh, dog integra, but let's see what our panelists say. Well, I think just if I'm remembering the data correctly, and I'm sure you're gonna enlighten us, the data on just this scenario suggest that even in the presence of an M184B, the response rate to dolutegravir or bictegravir with FTC-TAF regimens are equally good. So I don't have any problem with either the second or third choice. And I would probably go with bictegravir FTC-TAF just because it's one pill. Any Maybe difference? just the other thing, given he's 60, I think I would avoid a back of air in that mm -hmm. patient. So it seems like a fairly straightforward. And there's one other good reason, I think, so, to avoid a back of air. I would agree with you, though. So the, yeah, so I mean, so if you sort of if we look at the data in this population, we've got pretty robust data with the boosted PI. 
and nukes from the three large randomized trials. And then we have the Donning study with Dolutegravir, although it turned out for a variety of reasons, investigator choice of Acura3GC was almost never used. So there's reasons to biologically to believe Acura may not be as active with 184V, but we really don't have the data. So if you were going to go strictly by the data, you'd be sort of stuck with Dolutegravir FTC TAF. And then the big Tegravir, we don't have the data, but again, it's extrapolating based on VIX looks an awful lot like Dolutegravir. And it probably would work. You just don't have as much data with it yet. It's interesting that nobody here chose, uh, chose the boosted PI, and I think mm. obviously we have a lot of data with that as well, but there are new data, and maybe that's what's influencing people's thinking on Dolutegravir that I'll, I'll show you. I, I think the back of your issue are for the reasons of the age, um, but I think the M184V effect on the back of your has made me less likely to use it. It has more of an effect on the back of your, as, as Dr. Dar was saying, that does um, its effect on tenofovir. And um, to know in fact, M184V sensitizes too. So I, I tend to choose between these two. But the data that came out this year at CROI is supportive of um, a Dolutegravir-based regimen. This was a, a really influential study, also done in Africa. Um, but it was an influential study that compared people who failed an NNRTI-containing regimen, so similar to our patient. In that particular study, they got randomized to start second-line therapy with a boosted PI. This was done in Africa where boosted lopinavir was more, is more commonly used, and compared that to dolutegravir. One thing to keep in mind about donning is that participants had to have at least one active nuke. And so people got randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either dolutegravir plus two nukes or boosted lopinavir plus two nukes. And about a year ago, a little over a year ago, the study was essentially closed because the dolutegravir group emerged superior, not just non-inferior, but to superior to the, the boosted PI. So at this year's CROI, that, that's the, the bottom line, or the top line result, I should say, is that the dolutegravir was superior to the boosted PI. But at this year's CROI, what came out is that there was high rates of suppression in this study with dolutegravir plus two nukes, even when M184V was present, and the, and the investigator chose to use 3TC. And when I say a high rate of suppression, it was excess of 85%. So this gave me um, more confidence that um, either boosted PI, I think the boosted PIs we have here are better tolerated, of course, than boosted lopinavir, or now dolutegravir is a reasonable choice. I used to, in the past, use four drugs. I would use um, um, the, the choice of the TAF, FTC, Rolpivirine, plus dolutegravir, because I was unsure about um, the efficacy of a three-drug regimen, but now I'm, I've shifted over to, to three-drug therapy, what, what you all chose. Um, there are other data, the big Tegravir issue came up. At CROI this year, there were some data that came out about switching someone who is already suppressed. How many of you have a person who has M184V who has suppressed bar load on, on a regimen? So most of us over the years have acquired patients and have cared for patients who are, have one M184V. They're suppressed, and these two studies ask the question, can we uh, change their regimens and get them on a, a simpler regimen? So the first study that got presented was not a gigantic study. It was a single-arm study. It took a bunch of people, about 37, so not gigantic, who were already suppressed and switched them to L-vitegravir, cobacistat, FTC-TAF. So L-vitegravir, as you know, has a little less robust barrier to resistance than dolutegravir. All these participants had isolated M184V, so only M184V, and they all did fine. Every single one of them maintained suppression. That was presented last year. Um, uh, at CROI this year, two, uh, another study came out, which is still pretty preliminary, but it's a big study. Um, so 560 plus people, all of whom were 
I had M184, I'm sorry, all of whom were suppressed, and they were suppressed on the dolutegravir regimen. They got randomized to switch to Bictegravir FTC TAP, so now getting a little bit of data on Bictegravir, or dolutegravir FTC TAP. And in this big, big study, 560, 14% of people had M184V, either alone or with some other mutations. And at week 12, so really early, pretty much everyone stayed suppressed. So that also gives you some confidence that um, dolutegravir is obviously working and bictegravir may be equally good. I would keep watching this study though to see what happens over time, but so far it uh, looks promising. So yeah, I have come around to the idea of using the, the regimens that, that people have um, uh, voted for, although dolutegravir has more data behind it, mostly from Donnie. Okay, so now we're gonna go uh, switch to uh, uh, what regimen to use in someone with virologic failure. I wanna thank Bill Short who presented this a case at a recent meeting and he shared it with me. So this is a, I guess, a real life scenario that comes up. This is a 40-year-old man with biologic suppression. He's on darunavir cobacistat FTC TDF as, as separate pills. He's not been on regimens before. His creatinine begins to creep up a little bit, so you're interested in, in uh, potentially switching his regimen. And so you talk to him about switching him to darunavir cobacistat FTC TAF, so uh, substitute out TAF for the TDF. This was a little bit before we had the single pill combination. So he makes a plan to change in a few weeks and then return for labs after you make the change. This is, we do this every day. But he misses his six week follow up for labs and he comes back about three months later and now his viral load is 3,500. And he denies missing any doses but when you explore things in more detail, it turns out he's only been taking the FTC TAF and isn't taking the protease inhibitor. He some, somehow thought that this had all, all of the regimen in it. How many people have had this happen? Uncomfortably, uh, a lot. Okay, so I'm gonna. This is gonna be a mix of your thoughts and the panel's thoughts on what you would do. So you're gonna send the genotype, right? This person has virologic failure. While you're awaiting the genotype, in my institution, it takes about 10 days. Maybe it takes a little longer, a little less. But what would you do while you're waiting for the genotype? And go ahead and vote. This should be a quick one. Would you add back the darunavir kobe? Um, what you intended him to take while awaiting the genotype, or or would you do something else? So yes. You'd add it back. No, you wouldn't. And see, you're just not sure. Okay, so looks like a lot of you would add it back while you're waiting for the genotype. I'm gonna ask the panel not this question, but a slightly related question. So for the panel, what, what do you think you might have? He's been on um, essentially an, a two-drug regimen, but not the two drugs you want him on. Um, he's on two nucleosides. And what would you do? Because um, this comes up, unfortunately, uh, too frequently. What would you do while you're awaiting the genotype? I'll take any, any comments. Eric, you're again leading in. What would you, does okay, this come that, up in your practice or in the LA? Yeah, oh yeah, it happens, okay. it happens. And this is sort of interesting. I mean, we always do worry a little bit. I mean, the advantage of a single pill is mostly for the patient, yeah. but this is a real thing that happens and is a risk factor when you're giving people multiple pills together. Yeah. Um, there are also all sorts of issues about the toxicity in renal with the TAF and boosted PIs and everything like that, too. Uh, in any event, um, I would expect if he's on dual regimen with TDF or Tenofir FTC that he'll definitely have 184V and may very well have K65R. That would be what I'd be betting on. And then the, to me, the options as to what to do next that I would be struggling with is either to either add back the darunavir Kobe with the idea that in the next 10 days he isn't likely to develop PI resistance, I'll have a lot more information and go from there, or think about a, a boosted PI integrase with the nukes. 
regimen with the idea that then I can regroup when the resistance data comes back, but in the interim, then if I, I, I can be really certain I'm unlikely to do any additional harm along the way. So I'd be sort of probably toying with one of those two strategies. Any other comments? Getting some nods across the board there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that is exactly, I think, the, the consideration. So this person ended up having both K65R, uh, another nuke mutation, and, and one, M184B, so had just the, kind of the mutations that you heard about. When I heard this case, I initially thought that he was just going to have M184B. Because if you look at the PrEP trials, um, where people are acquiring HIV when they're so in the PrEP trials, there's always a small number of people who acquire HIV when they're getting TDF-FTC, and they typically have 184B. K65R isn't so common, but in this case, that's indeed what he had. And so that's a really important consideration. And I think the, the regimen discussion was, was touched on. Do you um, add in an integrase inhibitor or not? And in this case, what Bill did is he started the patient on the Durinivir-Cobi, what we all wanted to start, but he did add Dalgitegavir. He was worried about that possibility of K65R and then um, did get virologic suppression. So I, I thought that was a really instructive case, something that comes up you know, too frequently. So. Okay, so now we're gonna switch gears a bit. And one question, was there any follow-up on his creatinine clearance? Was that from the cobacystat or was that yeah, from the tenofovir? Yeah. In, in this particular case, I think it was, um, he did end up getting a cystatin C, which is sometimes used to try to sort that out, and I think it was real. I think it was from the TDF. Yeah. And it's a good point that um, you could make a, I'll go back for a second, you could make a case in this particular instance of really uh, dropping the, the TAF of TC. Yeah, Would people do that? Yeah. You could, you could we don't have a ton of data on Darunavir, uh, Cobacystat, Dogitegavir, but the data that we have, which is largely retrospective, su uh, suggests that it would work well. Yeah, and then the other thing, just to sort of finish the thought, yeah. is you know the, there's this quirky thing where TAF FTC was developed only with 25 milligrams of TAF, even though it was developed when you used it with a booster of any type to be only 10. So we were actually giving people who are perhaps had some unique risk for renal toxicity a higher dose than had been used in any of the clinical trials. When they co-formulated it as the single tablet, the TAF came down to 10. So another advantage in the setting, if you did want to push on with TAF FTC, to make sure the person is actually on the single tablet, not just for convenience, but also tolerability. You know, it, it's become recognized that these boosters not only boost the levels of um, L-vitegavir, um, or in the case of PIs, PIs, but they actually boost the levels of tenofovir. That's that's really kind of the salient point here. So, all good, all good considerations. Okay, so this is again uh, something that I think comes up commonly in clinical practice. So I wanted to um, uh, uh, get people's thoughts on what do you do in someone with persistent low-level viremia on ART. And to set this up, I'll share a case of my own, which is a 63-year-old man. He got diagnosed with HIV in the 90s. His CD4 countenator was pretty low, 190, uh, 180. His viral load was 60,000. He had been on um, multiple regimens in the past with no known drug resistance. And between 2010 and, and 2015, he was on a boosted PI plus TDF uh, FTC, but never suppressed. His viral load was 50 to 200, never really went above 200, but never really went below 50. And then more recently, he's been on Dolichegvir plus FTC tenofovir, and same thing. Now his viral load is between 40 to 200. He tells me he's 100% adherence and he, adherent, and he doesn't take any other meds. So again, how many of you people, how many people have patients like this? About half of you. 
So what do you do in, in such a patient? Do you um, change his regimen? So he's never been below 40, but he is below 200. Do you intensify his regimen? Do you, do you add a, another drug to try to get, get him down to below detectable? Do you leave him alone? And if it's something else, this one I really want you to tell me because I want to know <laughs> what to do. This comes up a lot. So um, let's see what our audience thinks. And then I think our panel probably also has their own opinion about this and maybe their own practice. I, the reason I present a lot of these cases is because they're not a totally exact answer. This is, I guess, the art of medicine. This is where we have to you know, new, use the data that we have and apply it to the person in front of us. There can't only be six people who... <laughs> 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 only I think there are people who yeah. think they have an answer. I, I think there's a system <laughs> issue, because I don't think only six people about Okay, may, now we go. Here we go. Now they're, they're coming in fast and furious. <laughs> Most of you are leave them alone, and uh, I'd love to see what our panel thinks, because. Yeah, I, should, I was going to say something else, which is going to oh. be stop measuring Zvara Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> which is probably the same thing as leave them alone. Okay. Um, so I'm not aware of any clinical outcome data that, that shows people with that level, less than 200, persistently, intermittently, have any adverse um, clinical outcomes or associated with any progression of, of HIV. So 200 to 1,000, there seems to be a little bit more concern there, and uh, seems to be more predictive of a, of a loss of virologic control. But between 50 and, and 200, I'm not aware of any data that would support changing. Any other differences? Any, I, I, well, I, I think this gets to the whole question of viral persistence. Um, maybe that's the point you're going to make. But um, I will say that in the past, I've done all three yes, of those. I was going to say, I've done all of those things. <laughs> and I can't say that any one approach has yeah. had any better success <laughs> than the others. But um, this may be a place, and Obviously, it depends on other background issues for perhaps looking at archived resistance mutations and whether there's that viral reservoir is intermittently reactivating and kicking out um, persistent or encouraging persistent viral replication periodically. And that's what you're really measuring, and that that archived virus is resistant to some of the drugs in the regimen. So it's probably the only place where I think looking at archived viral mutations in an assay would be something that might help you. Um, having said that, I'm not aware of any clinical trials that have looked at that question and used that kind of resistance testing to drive the next decision in treatment. And so I think, um, most of the data have showed that intensification hadn't made any difference, but most of those are observational data. And changing the ART regimen, same answer. So if there is a way to look at archived viral resistance mutations and if there's a way to ta tailor a regimen based on that, then that might help you. But otherwise, don't have any good ideas. 
other? Yeah, you're probably going to go over the guidelines. Guidelines mm -hmm. decided to take a stand on this some years ago just because it was so common mm -hmm. and nobody knew what to do. And, and I was guilty, too, of initially flogging people right. and not really <laughs> seeing anything positive come out of it. So we relied on a few smallish data sets and a few observational studies to convince ourselves that we could ignore this. But I must say, every time you know this comes up, there are other studies that say some people are evolving mutations and that some of these people may be at some risk for failure. So it continues to make me extremely uneasy, but I am not convinced that any of these interventions help. So I generally sit tight and watch. So kind of going back to an earlier question yeah. from uh, following my discussion, this might be a person that you'd put on a statin. <laughs> Not for its statin benefit, but for its anti-inflammatory benefit, because the one downside of leaving them, leaving him alone, is persistent viral replication is associated with persistent immune activation and inflammatory response, which leads to some of those end-organ disease complications that we talked about. So, so the, the reason I brought the any other points? I think a lot of Yeah, that, I, I think that's an interesting thought, Connie, and I was, I was curious, anything evolved with measures of immune activation? I mean, we've been experimentally looking at measures of immune activation for 30 years from the original work at UCLA by Janice Georgie to, you know, other kind of measures. Um, do we have any measures that we feel confident in clinically using? As predictors? As, you know, predictors of this immune activation? Um, most of the, those data have not been looking at disease progression where you would be worried about progressive um, evolution of resistance mutations or poor outcomes related to lack of virologic suppression, but a number of inflammatory markers, even the general ones like CRP and IL-6 and some of the uh, cyto... Uh, cellular-based immune assays that Janice Georgie started off with have all been associated with end-organ disease complications. And the higher the levels of some of those inflammatory markers, the higher the likelihood of things like cardiovascular disease events, liver events, um, other abnormalities related to end-organ disease. So um, while it's not statistically an issue related directly to viral load leading to disease progression, there is evidence to suggest that the more persistent the inflammatory response and the immune activation response, the higher the risk for downstream and end-organ disease complications. The trick, of course, is what do we, we do about it, and that's, that's still to be determined. Yeah, whether we have something we can do about it, we don't. Dr. Croy was filled this year with essentially negative studies on trying to reduce that inflammation. We'll see what statins do, as uh, right. Dr. Benz was saying, with, with the big reprieve study. So there is no definitive answer to this. I, too, have tried all of this. Um, there are some randomized trials looking at intensification, not so much for this low-level viremia, but if you take a single copy assay, a research assay, most people, 80% plus, will have some virus left on a single copy assay, and intensifying in that setting um, doesn't seem to, to change the single copy assay. There was one bit of data from Croy that I thought was interesting that I wanted to share because it, it lends some support that maybe this virus is coming from the reservoir, but may not be replicating, and I thought that was really interesting. So this is a study, a small study, uh, that looked at non-suppressible viremia. It was done in 10 people. It was done out of um, uh, John Miller's lab in, in Pittsburgh. 
they had two hypotheses for this non-suppressible virulence. These were people whose viral load was between 50 to, to uh, 350 over years. So one option was they had viral replication. And then the other option is that they had clonal expansion. So what's the difference? In viral replication, because the virus is going on to another cell, it'll integrate itself somewhere else in the genome. That's kind of the definition of viral replication, is it's going to another cell and, and therefore integrating elsewhere uh, into a new place. Clonal expansion is an infected cell. It's that reservoir cell that just proliferates over time, slowly but surely. And there is more and more evidence that pretty much most people with HIV have some clonal proliferation. So those were the two options that they assessed. This, were, this was after they tried to exclude things like non-adherence and inadequate drug levels. So a small study, only 10 people. They didn't have any suspected non-adherence. The median viral load was just like all the patients that I think you have, which is a viral load of about 100, ranging between 40 to a little over 350. And the median duration on viremia that was stable during that study was over three years. So they, they did this sequencing and they did this integration side analysis. And what they found, basically found is that in all 10 people, it looked like the virus was coming not from replication. All the integration sites were the same. It looked like it was coming from um, clonal expansion. They call these things replophones. They didn't find any drug resistance. And you can do drug resistance down to even low bar loads with, um, with uh, research tests. And there was no evidence of inadequate drug levels. So the implication of this is that intensification or changing around ART probably wouldn't be effective if that's what's causing it, and that you might even need to get rid of those replicones if we, replicones if we were going to ever cure HIV. So this, in my own mind, what I take away from this study is I still go through the issue of non-adherence. I still go through the issue of resistance. Um, uh, it's an interesting idea to look for resistance through a proviral DNA. And I definitely, definitely go through the issue of is there some drug-drug interaction? Are they taking their dog integrator with calcium carbonate or something like that? Or are they taking their, their ropivirine with a, a proton pump inhibitor? But if I don't find anything, I can't find any non-adherence, I can't find any drug-drug interactions, and they're stable, I, I, I now tend to leave them alone. The people who probably have more of this replicone issue, this, this clonal proliferation, are those people who have low CD4 counts to begin with and just have a bigger reservoir. Getting some nods all around. So let's do the um, one more antiretroviral case, and then I'll finish up with a couple of curveballs, I guess, or some surprises. So, um, what do you do in someone who gains weight after starting ART? This must come up in your practice if it's anything like my practice. So, this is the case that I, I want to use to illustrate this point. This is a 63 year old African American woman. She was diagnosed with HIV in the 1990s. She's been on previous regimens, including regimens that um, kind of second-line regimens because she's got drug resistance. So her previous regimens have been TDF, um, FTC, efavirenz, more recently on boosted darunavir plus etravirin, TAP FTC because of resistance. And a little while ago, she got sw I switched her to dalgitegavir plus boosted darunavir plus TAP FTC. And over the next couple of years, from um, uh, this is over the past few years, she gained almost 40 pounds from about 210 pounds, which is where she was before, to 250 pounds. And she asked me if her weight gain is related to her medicines. So I have a bunch of smart people in this room. Weight gain is associated, what do, what do you tell her? Um, is it a, a weight gain associated with all uh, antiretroviral regimens? Go ahead and vote. Integrase inhibitor-based regimens, protease inhibitor-based regimens, NNRTI-based regimens, or the jury is still out.
So about half of you are, are convinced by some recent data with integrase, but the, a good number of you are still you know, waiting to see. Some like um, all antiretroviral regimens, and 20% of you say jury's still out. Um, what does our panel think? Okay. Well, you can be the jury. I think it's a trick question. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's been so much discussion about whether it's more with some drugs than others, but it's more with, not any. I mean, I think in general, if you look at most trials, people gain weight yeah. when they start antiretrovirals and they get healthy. But 40 pounds? <laughs> Two years is a lot. So, you know, I showed you the teaser slide so you can finish reviewing the data from those, uh, from all the other studies that were presented at CROI. But I think the right answer is all antiretroviral therapy regimens have been associated with weight gain. And there's the one mechanism is reversion to the mean. So if somebody's unhealthy and they get healthy, they tend to gain weight irrespective of antiretroviral therapy. The other thing that's in, at play here is she's 63 years old. So what 63-year-old hasn't gained weight over the <laughs> lifetime of their uh, cycle around the sun? So uh, those things have to play into it as well. And then the NA Accord data clearly showed that there was weight gain with all the different drug classes. There may be more with integrase inhibitors, but that's on top of other things that have gone on. And all of these drug classes have been associated with weight gain. So I don't think the jury is out. I think they all are associated with weight gain. So it is true, and for sure, there is this return to health phenomenon. You saw uh, this slide earlier, but I'll just point out and stress a few things, and then I'll show you a bit more data to accompany it. So this is probably that return to health. You take a, a people off of ART who have this constant, you know, 24 hours a day virus replication, and you put them on ART, you shut that down, and then suddenly the energy demands on them goes down, and they gain weight. That that is. That's been known for years. That's that return to health that, that you want um, and that our patients want. But what the NA Accord showed this year is after that first year or so of, of weight gain, that there continued to be weight gain, and then they broke it down by class. And this was in a big study, as you heard earlier today, 24,000 people, not randomized, though. And in that study, they showed that integrase inhibitors and PIs were associated with greater weight gain. That's the red and the blue as compared to NNRTIs. And then when they broke it down by different integrase inhibitors, dolutegravir was associated with the greatest weight gain as compared to raltegravir, and raltegravir was a little bit more than albitegravir. Now, what else was presented at CROI? Because this, and no matter where you turn to CROI, you saw something on weight gain. So these were another study. This is more, I guess, analogous to my patient. This is switching, and this was done out of the ACTG. This was over 900 people who were on a regimen and then switched to an integrase inhibitor-based regimen. Again, observational. In this study, you can see that the red line or the red arrow is when they switched, and then you can see a fairly pronounced, I think surprising, uh, amount of weight gain in the people who switched to an integrase inhibitor regimen. In the ACTG study, women, uh, blacks, and those over age 60, you've heard uh, Dr. Prince was right about this, had the greatest weight gain. And in the ACTG study, also dolutegravir was associated with the greatest increase in annual weight as compared to elvitegravir and raltegravir. At CROI, there was two other studies that had similar findings. One was an observational switch study, and then one was a study in the WISE, which is a, a group uh, switch, um, a, a, a cohort of women. There were two studies that didn't uh, support this uh, association. One was um, the TRIO study, which showed s some association, but when they corrected for all the other um, 
factors that they correct for, including psychiatric disease and psychiatric medications, then, then that association went away. And then a study that was um, led by Rafi Landowitz here in UCLA that, that looked at cabotegravir, a different integrase inhibitor, and people without HIV, he saw no, uh, that group saw no association with, with weight gain. Now that raises an interesting possibility that if this weight gain issue is real, maybe it has something to do with the interaction between the virus and people who have HIV and, and integrase inhibitors. So I, I think there is an increase in weight, obviously, a return to health. As to whether it's class specific, this is my own take on, on this issue. I think there are accumulating data, I've, showed, I've shared some of it, and there's, there's others that we can talk about if, if you'd like, that suggest that integrase inhibitors are maybe associated with greater weight gain than some other regimens. A lot more randomized data needs to be kind of, needs to come in. Whether there are real differences between the integrase inhibitors, and one really important point, whether there's a contribution of the nucleosides really is still uncertain. There are some data suggesting that perhaps TAF may have a more, um, maybe have some association with weight gain as well. And in some of the switch uh, studies, people were not just switching to integrase inhibitors, they were also switching around their nukes. Uh, bullet number three is critical. We don't know if this is um, what the mechanism is, and we particularly don't know what is the distribution of fat. You all know that there's a difference between kind of normal weight gain, which is mostly subcutaneous fat, and kind of lipodystrophic fat gain, that, that visceral fat gain, which is worse on the cardiometabolic uh, axis. What kind of weight gain is, are we talking about with integrase inhibitors? Nobody yet knows. And then the last point, I guess, is the bottom line for right now. Uh, and persons with significant weight gain, whether switching their <coughs> integrase inhibitor regimen to another regimen, whether that would be beneficial, I don't think anyone has any idea. And so those are kind of my take currently. I think something to keep your eye on. I want to conclude with what happened with this patient. She asked me if her weight gain is related to her meds. But while I was trying to go through all these different considerations, she actually started Amazing. This is, this is the most amazing part about this case. She began to diet and exercise, and she actually lost 30 pounds without changing her. <laughs> so that was a happy so. are, are you writing this up? Page <laughs> <laughs> uh, report and review of the literature. There's not any other literature, so. <laughs> Okay. Anyone want to comment? I'm going to do a few um, kind of off, but well, not really offbeat, that these things come up, but I'm going to go through a few surprises. But anyone want to comment before I? finish off with a couple more cases. Okay. So here are my surprises. They're, they're not that surprising, but the last one is, I would say. Okay, so we've seen a couple of these. This is a 40-year-old man with well-controlled HIV on a back of a 3TC dolutegravir. He presents with six days of abdominal cramping and diarrhea. He's got one to three bowel movements um, every hour throughout the day and night. He's got some blood on his toilet paper, but not in the stool. He's got some mild chills. His temperature is 100.7. He had traveled to Cape Cod. He had ate, eaten at cookouts, uh, salads with mayonnaise, and he had three new male sexual partners with oral anal stimulation. And this is what we get back on his uh, culture. So he's got Shigella Sanya. And so the question I want to put to you is would you treat this patient? Yes, no, or only if he doesn't improve? You know, 40%, 40%, we'll see if this, gives, if this comes together or not. So. Maybe not. <laughs> no, 
Okay, about three quarters of you say yes, one quarter say only if he doesn't improve. So okay. I'm really interested in what our panel would do here. Well, he has fever, so he's systemically ill. Yeah. I would probably treat, but I'm sure you're going to tell us about the resistance no. profile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the question is what? There's been more azithro resistance. There's been more azithro resistance and also uh, quinolone resistance, so maybe suffixing, but we'll see what your resistance is. But I would treat because he's, yeah. he's got fever. So the comment about azithro resistance, maybe suffixing here. <laughs> Yeah, the resistance part is the most interesting potentially, but I think from a transmission perspective would be another argument mm -hmm. for treatment, yeah. even though he will likely get better on his own or may very well. Yeah. So before we talk about resistance, I'm going to present a second case in the, in the same vein. Go ahead and let's move on to the second case because we saw, so this is the resistance pattern on this particular patient, so let me highlight what, what was came back and it's largely concordant with what, what was said. So this person is, uh, Shigella is, is resistant to ampicillin, is resistant to um, trimethoprimsulfa, and perhaps most concerningly is resistant to um, Cipro with an MIC of four. And there's no interpretation around the Zithro breakpoint, but it's greater than 256, it's very, very high. So that's, that is concerning. So um, let me um, present, before we talk about this issue of resistance Shigella, let me present a second case that we saw almost the same month. This is an HIV negative person, so not to take away from PrEP, but this is an HIV negative person on PrEP who um, presents with diarrhea, abdominal cramping, no blood in the stool. This person doesn't have fevers or chills, has oral anal contact, and he has um, Shigella flexneri. I'm gonna tell you his resistance pattern. His ampicillin uh, MIC is high, it's resistant. His trimethoprim sulfa is low, it's susceptible. And his Cipro, they give us no interpretation. We'll ask um, what your labs are doing in a minute. But um, it gives you a Cipro MIC of 0.12, no interpretation. So what would you do in this person? Uh, oral Cipro, go ahead and vote. Oral trimethoprim sulfa, no treatment, or would you have them come in for some IV ceftriaxone? Let's, let's see what people would do. I'm going to ask while you're voting, people seeing this here in LA? Are you seeing these kind of cases? Raise your hand if you are. A little bit, okay. So about a three-quarters, or two-thirds, sorry, would like oral Cipro, I'm sorry, oral trimethoprim sulfa, and then no treatment, about 24%. Any other uh, dis distinct thoughts from the panelists before I go into there, These cases are more informational, so I, you know, this is all going to be customized on the particular patient, but I did want to share some information. Any other comments before I, I do that? Yeah, just a comment yeah. is that, you know, you don't necessarily have an obligation to treat if someone is not, you know, um, significantly ill um, because additional exposure in a box could also cause to increase selection of resistance and the, you know, CDC and other kind of infectious disease control recommendations usually um, argue against treatment from a public health perspective. So from a clinical perspective, you know, it's hard when you have a, a positive microbiological test result and you have susceptibility information, you know, not to treat from a medical legal perspective, but from a public health perspective, usually the recommendations are not to treat. 
So that's a very good point. And this is what I, one, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this case. In my recent experience, this has changed. I used to treat everybody with Shigella. I mean, that's just what I did, is you treat Shigella. For Salmonella and some of the other um, enteric pathogens, you would base it on how ill they are. But let's talk a little bit about this issue of antibiotic-resistant Shigella. We're, we're seeing a ton of this uh, back east, and, and either you're going to see it, or it may come this way as well. So there is definitely an increased risk of antibiotic-resistant Shigella, particularly in MSM. There have been seven outbreaks in the last uh, less than a decade. Of those outbreaks, um, six of them had azithromycin um, resistance, and three outbreaks had multi-drug resistance uh, of the sort that I'm presenting to you. In New York City, where they've been describing this, 20% of Shigella isolates between the 2013-2015 range had decreased azithromycin susceptibilities with very high MICs. And this was mostly an MSM, most infected, most of them were infected with HIV. So uh, last summer, um, the uh, CDC, as was I think alluded to just now, put out a kind of a health bullet, a health uh, update around this issue of Shigella. So they noted a couple of things, and some of this gets pretty nuanced around the micro part of it, um, but they noted an increasing number of Shigella isolates that test susceptible to Cipro but has this kind of intermediate susceptibility with an MIC of 0.12 to 1 microgram per mil. When they look at that in detail, and this is still being sorted out, a lot of those Shigella isolates have resistance genes. Okay? So they take those ones, and the second case I presented you was an example of that, and they look for resistance genes, then they can find them. What they don't know is whether fluoroquinolones, which is what I used to use a lot, um, are associated in that particular setting with worse clinical outcomes or perhaps even increased transmission if you kind of keep it around like you do, like you might do with salmonella. There's also increasing numbers, they note in this health update, of isolates that exceed, um, that have essentially high azithro MICs. What the CDC is recommending, and this has changed for my clinical practices, give antibiotics if someone is immunocompromised, if they're severely ill, or in the outbreak setting where you're trying to decrease transmission. If you have someone, and I think this is probably the most important thing to consider, if someone doesn't respond well to your treatment, this is where you're going to want to really be thinking long and hard about Shigella resistance, and that's where you're going to want to get your local health department involved and get the isolate tested for some of these resistance, and then counsel patients to wait to have sex for one to two weeks after the, the diarrhea resolves. So um, there's a couple of MGH cases that I wanted to bring up just to illustrate this point. So we had four patients who had Shigella that was resistant to ampicillin, trimethoprim sulfa, azithro, and had a very high Cipro MIC. One case we did what um, Dr. Fallon suggested, we gave them cefixime, but the others we didn't treat for Shigella, and, and they got better. Actually, one person has Giardia, we treated his Giardia, but not a Shigella. And then the case that I presented to you um, was the Flexneri case. That person also wasn't treated. He had that kind of intermediate, uncertain Cipro MIC. And, and he also got better. So something to keep your eye on. This is um, you know, evolving, and um, these cases are coming from really all over the world. There was a recent report in CID from Australia where the same issue is, is being confronted. Would you repeat the culture? Would you repeat the culture? Um, these, the people who we didn't treat got better. I, mm -hmm. We have another patient that's not on the slide who is a, um, a healthcare worker, and there we're definitely repeating the culture. Mm -hmm. yeah. So food handlers, healthcare workers, that would be repeating the culture. So I have one minute left, but if I can go one minute into my um, question and answer time, I do want to present this last case because I think it's very illustrative. So this is a man that I take care of. He's middle-aged. He's got HIV. He's got a CD4 count over 500. He's been suppressed for years on a boosted PI. 
He presented with three to four weeks of abdominal pain and chest wall discomfort. He got admitted, actually, because of his chest wall discomfort to an outside hospital. And as part of his evaluation, he had a CT scan that showed pulmonary nodules and a rim and a multiple, not just one, multiple rim-enhancing lesions in the liver. Past medical history, he had had secondary syphilis several years ago. He had got treated. He had a non-reactive uh, RPR about four months prior to the presentation. He has multiple sex partners, doesn't always use condoms. Um, he's got no TB exposures. When I saw him, he was afebrile. He didn't have a rash. He didn't have adenopathy. He didn't have abdominal tenderness. He had no hepatosplenomegaly. But his LFTs were um, abnormal. His ALKFOS was 695. His ALT was 113 and 119. His AST was 70. Um, his bilirubin was 2.5. He is on atazanivir. So I chalked, that last one I chalked up to the atazanivir, the Gilbert syndrome you get with atazanivir. But the other LFTs were clearly new. He had had normal LFTs uh, four months prior. OK, so this is, I think I lost my pointer. Um, I'm going to point out for you, this is one of these nodules in his chest CT. Very distinctive. It, it's definitely there. And then you won't be able to see this well, but there's a nodule here in his liver, right at the capsule. And then there's, if this was a dark room with your radiologist, you'll see a dozen other nodules in his liver as well. But that long nodule, I think you can see clearly. So go ahead and vote. Uh, is this a malignancy? Does he have syphilis? Does he have Bartonella infection, pileosis hepatis? Does he have a fungal infection? Or does he have a mycobacterial infection? case uh, recently and I got the exact same. Mm -hmm. It's basically <laughs> every single diagnosis got a vote. So what does our panel think? It'd be great if you all voted for something different. <laughs> well, I would vote for syphilis just given he's had syphilis recently and he's afebrile. The uh, lesions in the liver are rim enhancing, which I think would argue against Bartonella. And he doesn't have a fever, which I think if he had mycobacterial or fungal infection, he would be more symptomatic. And you can certainly see these granulomas in secondary syphilis. I haven't personally seen pulmonary nodules, but I think the whole thing could be explained by that. I'm going to argue against syphilis, uh, <laughs> just because pulmonary involvement of syphilis is uh, extremely rare and case reportable, but this might be it. Um, usually syphilis does better in a microaerophilic environment, um, not the oxygen content in the lungs. We just do not see syphilis in the lungs with any real uh, uh, frequency. So out of these, I'm going to just have to pick malignancy um, to the <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to break the tie. I'm just going to say I think the epidemiology would be really helpful here. Yeah. You know, does this person have risk factors for endemic mycoses for mycobacteria tuberculosis to see where they fit on the list? Because I don't think it's a great presentation for any of these things. But it could be any of them. Right. Okay. So because of the hour, I'm going to go. At, so I didn't know what this was. Okay. So I, um, I actually uh, did the following. Let me see what our, our slide is. So I did a bunch of tests because I didn't know what it was. I did blood cultures, 
cryptoantigen, urine uh, histoantigen, all negative, tested him serologically for Bartonella negative, looked for a interferon gamma release assay negative, and I just double checked that he hadn't lost control of his HIV and, and he had. So what I did is I sent him for a liver biopsy. But let me tell you the real story. <laughs> the real story is as I uh, sent him for the liver biopsy, the, as they were about to put in the needle, I got a test result back. Okay, at the time, that, and I was like, should I stop liver biopsy? I'll tell you the test result in a second, but I didn't, because I also wasn't sure if the test result explained everything. So this is his liver biopsy. And what it shows is periportal inflammation, edema, and then these kind of loosely formed granulomas. So I initially sent him for the liver biopsy thinking this was going to be a malignancy. But the test result I got back at the same time as he was getting this stuck into him was his RPR. <laughs> and his RPR was 1 to 64. Okay? And it was, yeah, it was 1 to 64. And it had, negative, it had been negative not long ago. Gave him three shots of uh, ion penicillin and I still wasn't completely sure if he had two different things, but his ALFOS declined from 695 to normal. His ALT declined from 119 to normal. And then just to be sure, I kept re-imaging him. And those pulmonary nodules, because I too had never seen this, all went away, and so did his liver lesions. So <laughs> I told you there'd be a surprise. So syphilitic hepatitis is not rare. Okay, syphilitic hepatitis happens frequently. This kind of hepatitis, this kind of syphilis presentation is very rare. So LFT abnormalities occur commonly during secondary syphilis. Um, Alkfos is maybe disproportionately elevated. In one series, the Alkfos was, um, median was 186, but it went as high as 1800. Um, LFTs usually normalize after penicillin. Um, it can take months, though. If you go through a liver biopsy, there'll be pericholangiolar inflammation. Sometimes you see the spirochetes. In my case, you didn't, um, and um, you don't always see the spirochetes. The reason why they get this alkafos elevation is because of that pericholangiolar inflammation. There are rare cases in the Russian and Korean literature of gamma in the liver and even in the lung mimicking cancer, but they turn out to be syphilis. So I bring this just to say um, these are my take-home points. I'll start on the bottom and, and go look out for unusual manifestations. Syphilis hashtag is all the syphilis. <laughs> But so, so Raj, I hate to share anecdotes, but I can't resist. We had a patient who presented with yeah. uh, Louis Maligna, classic presentation, yeah. had a high RPR, yeah. and had bilateral pulmonary infiltrates with no other symptoms, yeah. completely asymptomatic. Yeah. We found those case reports mm -hmm. yeah. of pulmonary syphilis and said, well, that's probably what it is. We'll re-image him in four weeks after we treat him for syphilis because clinically he was asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. And four weeks later, when we were getting to re-image him, his sputum AFBs came back yeah. positive. <laughs> that's, that's, why, that's why I sent him for the that's why I sent him Hashtag it's always TB. <laughs> Well, I, I think we're right at the hour. I think I, I took a couple of extra minutes. I hope that's okay, and I'm happy to take any questions, and I want to thank the panel for their uh, I have five minutes, but I know it's also close to, to lunchtime, so if there are there any questions? Are there, okay, let's take those, and then we'll finish up at 105 right on time. You actually answered the Luckily, I have four other people here to help me answer the question. Someone had a question about um, how you would use cisstatin C you know, yeah. in clinical uh, practice. I'll say what I do. So I, I don't use it in all people. I do the serum creatinine. But in someone who's serum creatinine, now if the serum creatinine goes up substantially more than, say, 0.2 milligrams per deciliter, that's usually not consistent with a um, creatinine in, in a, uh, secretion. As you know, cobacistat, 
uh, big tegavir, dalgitegavir, real pivirine, all of these drugs affect creatinine secretion. They don't affect necessarily um, renal function. But when they do that, it's a pretty small change. It's on average 0.14 milligrams per deciliter. So once it gets to above 0.2, especially if it gets above 0.4, that, that shouldn't be just the creatinine secretion effect. And then I do worry that it's, it's a drug um, other than, that's a real effect on the renal function. If it's somewhere in the middle, then I'll sometimes do a cystatin C. It's an expensive test, just to point that out, um, to try to help me understand, um, because the cystatin C doesn't re rely on the serum creatinine. It estimates renal function without the serum creatinine. Anyone do anything different? Um, a, a question regarding your case number three uh, by Bill Short. Yeah. Um, they wanted to know once the patient was fully suppressed on um, on the uh, darunavir, uh, ritonavir, dolutegravir combo, uh, did you switch him off to something else? You know. That particular follow-up that was presented by Bill Short, he kept him on that. I think it, I could make it would be reasonable to, to switch him off the TAF FTC part because I think the two active drugs should should work. One study that's not perfectly um, relevant but is something to keep in mind. There was a study a, years, a number of years ago called Options, which the ACTG did. It looked at whether uh, if you've got two active drugs or more, whether you need to keep the nucleosides in place. Those drugs that was used that were used in options were before dolutegravir was available, but the essential bottom line of options, which was published in the annals a few years ago, was as long as you've got two or more active drugs, you don't need to recycle the nukes. And in this case, with the K65R and the M184V, I'm not sure you're getting anything from the TAF FTC. Uh, and the last question relates to low-level viremia, uh, whether um, uh, viral loads between 200 and let's say 500, if that makes the patient more contagious or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the, the, um, you'll hear about, I'm sure, um, uh, you equals you or later on today and, and ask Dr. Kellum that question, but I think most of the studies, well, the studies that have looked at um, prevention with treatment have used, um, so like the Partners study and the Partners 2 study that was published this last week, used a viral load cutoff of 200 copies. So above 200, I, I think we just don't know the answer, but I think I'm pretty confident below 200 that they're, they're non-infectious. But I would love Dr. Collins' uh, point. She may make it now or she can make it later, so. Well, in ancient times, Tom Quinn published from yeah. Rakai, and I think there were no transmissions less than, uh, I think their lower bound was 1,200. So I think it's probably, you can be pretty reassuring in, this, in that situation. But stay tuned. This will probably be brought up later. Okay, and then I guess the last question relates to uh, switching antiretroviral therapy. What would you do for patients um, who have undetectable viremia but the CD4 counts remain low? That's a it's tough always question. Happens. Yeah. <laughs> so CD4 count doesn't get say above 200, but they're undetectable. I used to try switching regimens, and it really didn't work. And there's uh, data now saying that. As long as their viral load is undetectable, um, even if their CD4 count doesn't go up, I worry about them more, but I don't, um, I don't tend to change their regimens. Um, remember back when we were doing IL-2 studies? They did studies to try to raise CD4 counts, and they can do it. You can raise CD4 counts with IL-2, but it doesn't make people do any better clinically. So I'm not sure that raising the CD4 count in that setting uh, makes a difference. So I tend to, to leave them alone. I look for other reasons. You know, maybe they're still on trimethoprim sulfa. Now I've got more confidence that I can stop that. Maybe they're on some other low marrow suppressant. Maybe they're taking an inhaled steroid and it's interacting with one of their meds and that's dropping their CD4 count. They do tend to have more inflammation, but we don't yet know what to do about it. So. 
So very good. Uh, well, I think we've reached the lunch hour, so I'm going to thank uh, Dr. Gandhi and the panelists for a wonderful session. Thank you for your um, We have, I believe, box lunches available for those for all of you here.